Welcome to Humanitu. I'm Adam Williams, creator and host of this podcast series about humanness and creativity. Today I'm talking with Lewis Lee, a community facilitator and mentor, a voice for social justice, and the Milwaukee-based curator of the Shared Studios portal. Lewis came up and still lives in the 53206. That's the zip code in the Amani neighborhood of Milwaukee, and it's been noted in part for having the highest incarceration rate of black men in America, as high as 62%. It also has been noted for some tremendous positives, like through the work that Lewis does. He talks with me here about some of those efforts and accomplishments, like negotiating gang peace using technology and maintaining it using creativity. Lewis is a mentor in a music studio that gives teens opportunities to step into a safe zone where they can co-create, develop skills, and get things off their chests in constructive ways. In this conversation, we also talk about Lewis's role as curator of a shared studios portal, connecting people from his community who might otherwise never talk with someone outside their neighborhood, with people who live around the world and otherwise are unlikely to ever talk with someone in the 53206. People in, say, Iraq or Puerto Rico, or Kenya or the Netherlands, or any of many cities in the U.S., like Baltimore or Colorado Springs. Lewis and I talk about the power of honest dialogue in breaking down cultural barriers and misperceptions, like racial stereotypes. We talk about the friendship that he now has with a 90-plus-year-old woman who is a Holocaust survivor, and how she and Lewis now co-lead discussions for others to untangle stereotypes long held between Jewish and black folks. We also get into Lewis's own youth in the Imani neighborhood, like how many years ago he struggled to stay out of prison, and then to find purpose in his life once he did. We talk about the profound ways that his brother's death to gun violence changed Lewis's life, and the successes that he now enjoys as a father to his three kids, who all have grown to become successful, thriving adults. Here is my conversation with Lewis Lee. Hey, Lewis, welcome to Humanitu. Thanks for being here with me. Hey, thanks for having me, Adam. I'm wondering, have you been putting in some work in the music studio? Were you there last night? Yes, as a matter of fact, I was. So what was going on? What were you doing? Well, basically, I'm kind of like finishing up a little soundtrack uh, for actually a, a state rep campaign. So like uh, the state rep, uh, my best friend Dennis Walters running for state representative for the 16th district. And one thing that's unique about it, he wants to really identify with the youth. So he thought he'd be like the first person or candidate to ever have a soundtrack or music thing to kind of go along with his campaign. So we've been kind of working on that music soundtrack. That sounds pretty cool. What I also know that you spend a lot of time in that studio doing is helping out kids in the neighborhood and doing a lot of teaching and mentoring and, and some good things with that work. How about you tell me about what is the work that you do with these kids? Well, uh, the work that I do with the kids, first of all, uh, the name of our center, well, Slash House is called Made Man Resource Home for Boys. Even though it's open to young women, we uh, kind of focus on young men. Being the fact that we live in one of the most incarcerated communities in the United States. So we use music as a way to kind of uh, keep the boys off the street and into a creative state of mind to where they're not doing anything negative and where they have a place to come and kind of express themselves. So we offer like a studio program, a recording engineering program, a music writing program, 
and we let the kids come in and just uh, be free and uh, free to explore the artistic expression and talk about some of the things that they go through in daily life, but use music as a way to channel that uh, negative and positive energy, if you know what I mean. Do they feel safe to do that with each other? Like, do they feel like they're able to let their guards down and just really let out what it is that's maybe bothering them and they feel like putting into this music? Well, I would say, yeah, because one thing about my uh, mentorship, we're very open-minded. Uh, how our approach to the boys with so many boys being in games and some of these kids uh, living in single parents households and not having male role models, we kind of let them express themselves the way they need feel to. Uh, and with music being the number one thing that attracts a lot of the kids, we find it the ultimate way to bond the kids together, no matter uh, what gang or what side of town they're from. It seems like when they are working on their music projects, they're willing to collaborate, uh, put their differences aside to create something that's special, something they seem is great. So believe it or not, we've been able to bring a lot of rival gang members together because of the music program, because so many people are into hip-hop, jazz, rock. We just started fusing it. And when kids hear other kids do something well, it inspires them to do something well. And it's like they find what they have in common, so they don't mind sharing with each other. How do you get them to be willing to share that space, to come in and say, all right, all that outside stuff, we leave it out there? By letting them be honest, just be themselves, not being judgmental to them, not judging them on how they talk or how they speak or some of the things they do. Learning to uh, use that as a way to make them approachable. A lot of these kids aren't approachable because a lot of the, uh, how can I say, elders in the neighborhood don't let them express themselves or talk the way they feel they need to talk or speak. Me, in my program, I let them talk the way they need to talk. It's like I'm more of a best friend than a mentor. Uh, a lot of my kids like to describe me as a, a, a huge kid. I'm like a 43-year-old kid, so they can identify with me. And I just kind of let them be themselves and uh, be free to speak the way they need to speak and just let them open their minds and express themselves. It's all about self-expression and no one judging them on what they think or how they speak or uh, what they views are, but just kind of enhancing that and supporting their thoughts, if you get what I mean. And I know that you know you have lived a number of these things that, that these kids are, right? I mean, that that's that credibility that you have for it, too, is you're not bringing answers. You're saying, I know where you're coming from. Can you tell me something about about that experience that that you have, that you know them in this gang culture, in that state of, uh, mind that they're living, you've walked some of those paths yourself. Uh, most definitely. Uh, one thing, when I was a kid, and very down to this day, I always hated having to learn from somebody who really haven't experienced what I experienced. Uh, I think the kids identify with what I'm saying is I'm more effective because they know I've been down the same road. They know I'm an expert in what I'm talking about. Uh, they know I'm a, a gang member. I don't hide anything I did in my past. They know I still have gang affiliations. They know I know the lingo. So they feel comfortable with opening up to somebody who's been through what they've been through. Uh, a lot of times, I think the kids been a, get a bad rap because you have so many people advising the kids and telling these kids what to do, but not really experiencing what that lifestyle is like. 
Um, I often say, how can you be an expert if you never go anything, go through anything? That's kind of like um, my, uh, how can I say, the reason why I, I don't like judges so much. I, I feel like judges, in order to be the ultimate judge, you should be able to live in that experience, like live in that community, see what goes into the mind of a kid who hasn't eaten all day or is his family on food stamps or his mother living in a single household and he the kid that have to go fend go out and go to food churches. I want to think once you get in a state of mind, you can understand them better. And they know that I've been that guy. They know that I've been in the gangs. I, I, I identify with them. I go to the same churches they go to, the same food uh, uh, trucks they go to. They see me every day in the neighborhood. So they feel comfortable with opening up with somebody they feel that their own. Uh, and they feel like I could talk exactly about the experience because I had the experience. Let's go back to where you said that this is the most incarcerated neighborhood in the United States. I've seen on a video where you said 62% of the men in the neighborhood either are or have been in prison and that that's the highest rate of any zip code throughout the entire country. And the neighborhood we're talking about is Imani in Milwaukee, right? And that's, is that, that's where you came up. That's where you grew up and where you still live. Yes. Imani 53206 is the zip code. And unfortunately, it is known as the most incarcerated community. Uh, I can truly say, if you came in my neighborhood, you would notice that it's like a ghost town of men missing between the age of 18 and like 40 due to the high incarceration rates. So it's like like you see 18-year-olds, but you really see 20-year-olds because they're about to go to prison. And then you see it's like a gap between 18 and then you jump up into 40. So you see a lot of young men then you see a lot of guys just coming out of prison. So uh, it's big business in Wisconsin, uh, just uh, prisons. And that's one of the main things we face that kind of tear our community apart. When you're in a community like mine with high incarceration rates and so many young people being locked up, you have the effects of so many families and households. People don't know once a person gets locked up, it affects his whole community in a way. Uh, With so many men missing, so many, even women missing, uh, you have nobody to guide the kids, nobody they can look up to. And so what you have is a bunch of young people running in the neighborhood, kind of running wild around the neighborhood without any guidance. So what we tried to do was be role models uh, or uh, get, uh, uh, how can I say, allegiance of fathers and men in the neighborhood that are left to kind of come together and be those role models and guide some of these young men that's about to come up. And one of the things we advocate for and we advocate for right now, since we're so affected by criminal justice, how come we don't have criminal justice classes in our schools as young as sixth grade? So one of the things we try to do with the Portal Project is educate uh, kids in general, uh, especially uh, young men and women that's in high school, uh, because we think it's important for you to learn what the law is since you're so affected by police and since police are always in your community and always pulling you over and you always encountering, you should learn some of your laws, some of your rights. Uh, um, That's what I kind of advocate for with the young people is just educating them on law enforcement and trying to, how can I say, better police and community relations by uh, getting offers to actually learn some of the people in the neighborhood instead of just coming from outside the neighborhood, coming to the neighborhood and kind of don't know the dynamics of the neighborhood. So that's why I think we have so much, uh, so many young people being incarcerated. Right. And you mentioned 
the portal. You're the curator for the Shared Studios portal that, I mean, these portals are all, are all over the world, but there's one right there in the Imani neighborhood, right? Yes. Okay. And that's the one that you're the curator for. I want it, for you, if you'll please give kind of an overview of what these portals are about, but then you can get into the specifics too of how you use it, how your neighborhood uses that uh, to make connections throughout the world. Well, portals are gold shipping containers equipped with immersive audio and visual technology. So when you step inside of it, it makes you feel like you're standing in the same room as a person, no matter what part of the world we, you're in. So for instance, a person could be in Milwaukee and can talk to a person in a, a refugee camp in Herbie, Iraq, and feel like they're standing face to face. Everything is live. You kind of can see what's going on in the background. They can see what's going on in your background. It's kind of like you a mirror into each community. So what this does makes for a more intimate conversation and makes for a more educational conversation. I like to say portals is the ultimate machine when you want to learn the truth about cultures because you're getting the version of the culture from the people who live it and not from TV. Uh, you learn it from the actual people that's on the ground. So you get a, a better view of what it's like and it helps you kill stereotypes. So many stereotypes come from what we don't know. So what portals help do is kill, uh, kill stereotypes, really. It's like the ultimate stereotype killer. I never thought that I could have friends in Germany and Erbia or Iraq or, and they feel what I'm going through and we find out what we have in common and why people should love each other. And, and we start to form these alliances all over the world to build the global community. I really think the ultimate goal in portals is to kind of uh, not only start a global community, but really uh, be the first major step, I say, at uh, chipping at discrimination and racism. As for in my neighborhood, we kind of use the portal for a person who never had none, and you get a machine like a portal, it starts to open Pandora's box in your neighborhood. We were originally supposed to have it for people to come and have these discussions about criminal justice and how they felt about being policed in their neighborhoods. But then it grew into something much more. We started to see this as a machine that we can use to teach foreign languages to our kids in the inner city. We started to look at it like we could share classrooms, teach world geography, world history. And what makes it neat, you're able to learn from the actual place and the people who live in it. So you get the more truth about the experience. So uh, portals became like a hub for the neighborhood to get real information. And I use the word real and truth because you're learning from the actual source. It's not like uh, nobody's giving you just some information on TV, leaving out bits and gas of information. So we use the portal as an educational tool in our neighborhood to just educate our young people on culture because a lot of our kids never even left out the inner city. So this, this is their way of seeing the world without having to leave. Not only that, but inspiring them to leave out of the neighborhood and go to college and talk to other people and become philanthropists and activists. So it's uh, we, we, we take uh, pride in our portal because it really opened the minds of so many in our neighborhood. Like you're saying, I mean, it really is a portal and opening a doorway to see there's something more than what's going on on my block. There's something more than what's happening in my life and to learn from so many different cultures, races, language, religions. And I'm, you know, this didn't exist when you were growing up there. So when you look back, uh, at when you were growing up there, again, you've said you were affiliated with gang life and all these things. 
to where you've come to as a leader in the community, what's on your mind when you think about, man, I wish I'd have had that. I didn't have it. It's amazing. Here we are. What's on my mind is exactly like you said. If I would have had this when I was a kid, I think I could have overcame life of prison. I always think back like all the things I could have overcome if this was existed. All the uh, people, I actually, when I got a put, I actually kind of felt bad when I first got it because so, I had been so judgmental of different cultures, especially like uh, people in the Middle East, for example. You, if you live in America, you automatically got the impression that they're terrorists. I, I found that that's supposed to be not true. A lot of scholars, doctors, a lot of activists, a lot of people who want to change the world live in the Middle East. So I just felt like if I would have had this younger, I would have been properly educated. If you get what I'm saying, I don't feel like I was properly educated and not being properly educated kind of led me into some of the things that I went into, like gangs, a life of selling drugs, prison, things like that. And I just think that came from a lack of not knowing and being in like the bubble. I like to say the bubble, not leaving out my neighborhood, not having any inspiration. And I think the portal inspires the kids. So many kids were inspired. We actually had a guy go to uh, Minnesota University for meeting some uh, college professors in the portal and was able to get them a scholarship for basketball. I think um, if we could have had this when I was younger, I would have I would have definitely probably right now, I think I could have probably been the next president. It's, it's amazing, and I love your passion for it. How long have you been working with the portals and making these connections? Well, this is my fifth year. Uh, this will be my sixth year. I'm like uh, one of the more Portal veterans, if I'm not mistaken, I was the eighth person in the world to kind of get the technology. And I, I, it came at such a great time because it's, it rescued me. It gave me purpose. It gave me a, a, a job, a real employment. Employment, not only real employment, just employment that I can feel good about. Many of times you have men in my neighborhood that work at dead-end jobs. So then I inspired to go to work. It was the first time in my life I was inspired to go to work inspired to reach out to people, inspired to communicate with people because I felt I had purpose. And I always tell people it kind of turned me from gang member to global philanthropist. So, and I never thought I could be in a magazine article or do a video or commercial, let alone even get on the airplane. Portals even started me to travel and see the world. So it gave me purpose that I didn't have. Is this also a hub where you can bring together kids from the neighborhood, kids from different gangs, and just like in the music studio, is, is that a uh, a hub of nonviolence and peace that opens those doors as well? Definitely. Uh, uh, one of the things we did earlier in the Port of Your Years was a gang truce, where we took a portal screen, put it on one side of town, and the, uh, the container on the uh, another side of town. It was a border that you couldn't cross one point in time. And we were able to negotiate peace from rival gangs through portals. Because one thing portals allows us to do to negotiate peace was here you have the gang members who sold enemies that hate each other. But one thing portal allows you to do is have the distance you need, but still be up close and personal, express yourself. So at first it's always chaos. But one thing we wasn't worried about was anybody getting hurt. Because you're in a portal, you can face the person face to face. And then we start to learn. That's when everything starts to unfold. People start, the game members started to learn. They had kids that went to the same school. Some of their cousins were cousins of rival game members. They went to the, had the same background. They, they shared some of the same interests. And then we were able to start the healing. 
But it, uh, I think we owed it all to Portis because it allowed us to bring them up close to the personal, but still have the distance that they need to learn each other. Because had we brought uh, uh, did a game truce by bringing the games in the same building, we, we believe it would have been some something bad probably would have happened. But allowing them the time that they need to come in this machine and talk face-to-face and still be a part, it gave them the time they need to know each other. And not only that, I think uh, by being tech, uh, how can I uh, how can I say, modern technology, something new. I think it really captured that interest long enough for them to pay attention to what's being said to each other. Uh, one thing I love about the portal is how attentive a person comes when they come in the portal. You might have a person who never pay attention in a regular classroom come inside a portal classroom and listen for the whole duration. It's the only time you can really get people to participate. I think that's what made it so effective in doing our first game truce. So that was one of the steps on actually kind of bringing the gangs together. And that was prior to us even starting the music uh, program. It was portals that really helped us bring those gangs together. It sounds like it's what helped also make the music studio possible so that you could have people share the same space in person, be together. Oh, definitely. So you've talked about being uh, in and out of prison yourself, having those troubles and things. And, you know, I, I've heard or read where you have said that you would leave prison each time and still not have then the coping skills. There was no pathway for you to the success, like what you're experiencing now uh, in the community and through the portals and doing that work. And what I'm curious about is what that story is where you said you would fall back on hustling because you didn't have that good job that would keep you out of the trouble and out of that, that flow and that there really was a lot of trauma from your childhood you were dealing with in that process, right? So there's just a lot tied up together there. Can you shed some light on what that story is? Because I think it also sheds light on the stories of a number of these other people around you and what's going on in this zip code. Many times my thing when prison, I always felt I was arrested, but I wasn't released with the proper knowledge and skills to do something. It's like a cool trick. It's like you go to jail, you get rehabilitated, but then when you get out, you can't get a job or decent employment. So you have to get a dead end job that where you can't make enough. And and if you're a person like me, I got four children at the time. I was a teen father when I was going through all this. So a lot of that led to me, the pressure to go back to the streets to make the, just a decent amount of money to where I felt like I could be a factor in my, uh, family. Uh, many of times when I go back into prison and talk to a lot of the guys, that's the number one thing. You have a, 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 a all these guys in prison and a lot of them are bad guys. I think they just wanted to be the ultimate providers. Uh, it's hard to face your family when you can't provide. And one of the things I, I used to go through that caused so much trauma is uh, imagine Christmases where you can't buy your kids nothing or imagine your girlfriend struggling and paying all the bills because you're making bare minimum money. So it kind of drives you back into the streets. And uh, prison, uh, I, I would think, should be the uh, turn it to universities, uh, educational universities. I mean, here's the best time you have the men's mind clear, you have them, they're drug free. Why not educate them? It seems like it's just dead time. And they only give you minimum skills to where you can't survive when you get out so that's one of the things i had to face uh being released from prison getting in and out of prison not having the means to survive actually the last time i went to prison i just decided if i hadn't decided myself 
that it was enough and I was hurting my family by being in prison and I didn't care about if I made good enough money, then I probably wouldn't have got to this point. Uh, but a lot of times it's just not feeling like you're a part of your family, not feeling like you a good provider that kind of leads men back and forth into prison and taking, how can I say, the fast route or a route, you know, to try to cheat to get to the top or make a decent money. So that's kind of led me going back to hustling, back to hustling. And all I ever wanted was just a, a job that pays a decent wage. That's why I'm so big in support of the raise the minimum wage to $15. I think that could do wonders if people made a decent wage. I think a lot of people will work and you'll have a less people going to jail for selling drugs and things like that. If they can make, how can I say, decent wages that make them feel like they're a part of the American society, American citizens. Uh, many of the people in my neighborhood, we all are below, po below poverty. Like right now, I'm proud of my job and I'm just kind of climbing out the mud, but I'm still below poverty, but I have more than I need than when I was younger I had to get dead end jobs. So I just think if people had that piece of the American dream that they say you can have, and, and let's just having a great job, I think we can have less men in prison and we will have more people uh, contributing to society, if if I would say. What do you think the politicians and law enforcement and all those systems? What do you think they're not understanding, or they're getting, they're getting, you know, getting wrong in how they're handling this? Because that system is like you're describing it is what creates that perpetual flow where you're returning back to dead end jobs. So you hustle, so you end up back in jail and it's just a cycle that is hard to break. What do they need to understand from you about how this can be better? I think law enforcement and just anybody who has the power to just be any type of ruling body in the criminal justice system. I don't think they, I think they lack experience. You know, many of these, judges or police officers, they don't even have interest in the neighborhoods that they police. They have no real commitment. And then what you have is outside people coming in the neighborhood and they just strictly going by the book. So a kid in a black hoodie with a black hood on is automatically dangerous. He don't know that could probably could be the basketball star of the neighborhood. So it's like uh, in our neighborhood, if you lived in the neighborhood and you was a part of the community and you try to get to know people in the community, you can learn that uh, when you see four kid, black kids in the car riding around that they're not gang members. Or when a kid is walking around in this neighborhood and he's, uh, like I said, he got on this black hoodie, he's not up to nothing. I think you need to learn, they lack knowledge of what it's like to be just an everyday person. I think some of the stuff that law enforcement learns and judges and prosecutors learn, you can't learn this in a book. That's why I wish if you if I could be president of the United States, I would make it required that if you had the power to give a person 30 years or sit to somebody in jail or arrest them, you would have to be invested in the community, live in the community so you can see what it's like. What, what drives a man to want to commit a crime? I don't think they go deeper into that. I think they just teach a, a, a one version of it. And that's what they go off of the version that's in the book and not the real life version. Like me, myself and I, I had to learn. Certain things I learned in the book, but it was certain things I learned by just everyday life experience. And I think uh, just having the actual experience of what it's like to be in some of these neighborhoods or be harassed by police uh, education on that, I think it can make for a better law enforcement. I just think it's just a way too many police who don't 
live in the neighborhood, who don't care about the neighborhood. And how could you care about something if it's not affecting your neighborhood? I mean, if you get to go back to the suburbs at night or wherever you live to your house on the hill, how could you really care about the people that's down here? So that's why I wonder, I think more police should have to live in the neighborhood because if you live in that neighborhood and you hear gunshots every night and you see people doing bad things, then you will understand it a little better and then you will know how to police it. Then you will understand what's good and what's bad and it won't just be like everybody's getting held under the same standard. Like me, I'm a six foot, two, 300 pound black guy. I always get a bad rap every time the police see me. They're on me because I look suspicious. I, I fit the description. Nobody knows that I'm a teddy bear. Nobody knows that I'm really trying to bring change. If they uh just took the time to know the neighborhood, I think things would be better. Yeah. And you know what? When a police officer pulls me over or looks at me, I know I'm not going to get harassed because I'm a white man and I'm not seen as that threat. And they look at a young kid who's black, who's wearing a hood as an automatic threat. Automatically. What I am acknowledging here is the privilege of my whiteness and where I think we have a disconnect in society, in white society, is that because I've grown up being told the police are okay, they're helpful, they're good people, and they don't harass me, I think there's an awful lot of white people in this country that find it very difficult to understand what you're talking about. They find it extremely, maybe even impossible to understand the idea of walking down the street being harassed by a police officer. So I think there's a huge disconnect in that knowledge and what you're talking about. If more people, white folks, and those tend to be a lot of the ones who are in positions of authority in the country, if they would go get some of that knowledge and understand, oh, wait, what you are telling me right now, what you are telling all of us is true. It happens. And I think there's a huge gap in understanding and even believing that in this country. And, and I, I don't know how to help close that gap. I definitely believe it. Uh, that's the thing. But one of the things I'm glad to say that we've been doing, we always had this uh, a bad stigma about Jewish people and how they don't like black people or don't want black people to, how can I say, succeed or get the American dream. So one of the things I did was start a class with a, a 90-year-old, a Jewish Holocaust survivor named Agnes Schwartz, who I met in the portal, and we just became tight over the years. And we decided to do uh, what it is to be black class and what it is to be Jewish class. And we dare to ask some of the hardest questions that you need to ask on what it's like to be a black person in the inner city or what it's like to be a Jew person who might be privileged or have everything. To just skill the stereotypes because a lack of, a lot of this comes from just not knowing. And no, uh, people are too scared to have a discussion and talk about the real issues that's, uh, that plague the neighborhood. So what we decided to do in our class was really talk about the real issues, really let people ask those questions that's curious and let white people ask the questions they always want to ask black people. Let black people ask the questions they always want to ask white people. But we use it as healing and we try to explain to uh, why things are the way they are so we can get a better understanding and begin the healing between uh, a black and Jewish relations or black and white relations. And it's really been effective and really bringing us together. And I've been doing this with uh, the Spongent Family Foundation and Agnes Schwartz and I, I'm the Holocaust Museums of America, where once a month we have these discussions about just what it's like to be a black person and what it's like to go up in the inner city and, and what it was like. And we find out what we have in common because, you know, the Holocaust it almost resembles a little bit like slavery. 
and the, uh, how can I say the persecution that the uh, Holocaust survivors went through, we kind of went through that through slavery with so many of our ancestors being killed and enslaved and things like that. So we find out that and we use that as a tool to kind of heal each other and bring up these facts and kill those curiosity that everybody always want to ask and really bring these two cultures together. Curiosity is is really huge in communication, right? And and that's really a, a real thread through what we're saying here. Everything is about breaking down barriers, doing it through communication, whether that's between two gangs in your neighborhood or if it's between two races or two cultures or whoever across the world. So, yeah, I love that this is a thread that just keeps going. And I'm going to go to one more. You brought up police community relations earlier. I want to ask you about that specifically in your neighborhood, because this social justice work that you do, these good things you're doing in your neighborhood, I'm curious how it's going how you work with police community relations, and then especially because things have popped up, they've gotten uh, more intense in recent months with protests nationwide, how that's also affecting your neighborhood and those efforts to build those relations with the police. Well, I can say uh, prior to the protest, I saw a, a, a great improvement in the police and the way they were communicating with the people in the neighborhood, I think a lot of that had to do with portals because uh, it, it the police were just as interested in what was going on as the people in the community. And it was a great time to bring the police in the community together. And what we started to do was actually get police to come sit in some of our classes in the portal and actually meet some of the people with other cops in different parts of the world and law enforcement. So it became a, a a tool for them as well as a tool for us to kind of bring us together and learn each other and kind of disarm the young people for hating police so much and vice versa. I think the police got to learn about the young people in the neighborhood and how inspired they were to be uh, leaders and even to find out that some of the kids wanted to be cops also. But I think uh, after the protest and that thing with uh, uh, George Floyd, I think it just ripped, how can I say it kind of brought us back. It rewinded us back from a little bit of our progress because it kind of put the thing back in everybody's head in the community that the police is out to get us. And then the way they talked to us when the protest started, like when all these young people started protesting, it didn't help that the police would kind of come out and kind of try to arrest so many people and do things like that. So what you had was we were improving so much, but now we're kind of having a decline due to all the protesting and the way that people are, are interacting with the cops. But I can say uh, I'm forever changed because now I can truly say I don't think all cops are bad because you do have those selected few police who have been trying to understand uh, why the protesting is going on and help and march alongside uh, some of the young people. Mainly African-American uh, police, I think uh, it's just got when we were progressing so much in the beginning, the last five years after this uh, George Floyd thing, I, we kind of lost our, how can I say, hope. And people just started, you know, it's like back to the thing. I can say right now in the Midwest right now, I've never seen so many police being hurt. Like people are starting to fight the police back now. People are starting to shoot at police. I think it is getting out of hand. I think a lot of it got to do with just 
people were trusting them at first, and then the George Floyd thing happened. Then you keep hearing all these other stories of so many people losing their lives to police, and even a few people here in Milwaukee lost their lives to police. Like uh, we had a kid that's in our one of our programs. He got killed by a police. His name was uh, uh, what's this guy named Sylvester Patterson. He got killed by a cop, and that kind of like shook the neighborhood to where it was. It was actually a three day riot behind that. So I think a lot of people just uh, they're trying to trust the police, but it's so hard. And with this whole defunding the police thing, it's a good idea, but it's a bad idea in a way. Because I'm one of the few people that believe you do need some type of enforcement. People should just be running wild, committing crimes. But then again, I think it's the approach. I think the the law enforcement in our neighborhood and in so many other neighborhoods just got a whack approach to where they approach people of color. You know, they talk to us harsher, vulgar. It's all like, like no respect. You know, and um, I just think it just took the life out of people. And what you see now is people not trusted police so much that they're willing to fight back and even possibly shoot at the police if they have to. And that's sad to say. I think at least, at least in my understanding of what defunding the police is about is that what they're talking about is reining in some of what the police are used to do so that they're not necessarily the ones called for every little incident that exists out in the neighborhood you know, if somebody is having an episode with mental illness out on the street, that instead of sending officers who have guns and tend to have an approach of authority, maybe it's mental health professionals that are sent, medical professionals to help this person, right? So I don't think it's about removing police completely from being able to enforce laws, because we do need to have have that and not have a sense of total anarchy and free-for-all. It's not the Wild West, you know. So I think it's an interesting topic, and I don't have the answers in an I'm in no way an expert in that area, but from what you just said, you know what I heard is the main thing uh, going on, and it continues with our thread about communication, is that people want to be heard. The people in your neighborhood want to be heard. The people in the neighborhoods all over that are having clashes with the police just want to be heard. They want the system to hear them, and there's so much pain in that, and, and it's coming out in unconstructive ways at times from everybody involved. Yeah, and it's like um, people are fed up. I mean, just think, 400 years. I could think back far as the 60s and my mom them being harassed by police and the bad rap that they got. Uh, I think people are fed up. Like, how can you get away with these crimes so many times and no justice? So I just think people are angry. And in my neighborhood, it's like if you can't, your voice can't be heard, I think that's when people get to tearing up everything. Because they feel like we can't be heard. The only way we can be heard is if we destroy everything. That's why I, I, I would like, when I'm on TV, I'm listening to like the president talk about looters and uh, labeling them. I understand there's some people out here just tearing up stuff and looting for nothing. But believe it or not, if I told you, Adam, a lot of those people are just looting it. And I can only speak for my neighborhood it's because they're just not being heard. When they're marching down the street in peace, they're never being heard. It's just like, uh, we're going to do something and then once the riding stops, they go back to normal. I always view uh, everybody in Washington that has control over the government is like a big country club. Because why is it that you elect these people into office and then it takes so long to pass a bill? Like you've been in office for like, for like right now, they're feuding over sending people money that they need. Why have a few? It's an epidemic. People are, need help right away. 
How could you debate helping people in the epidemic? What takes so long to get these people the services they need? It's people down here hurting. And I think people are fed up, and then I believe the only way they think they can voice can be heard is if they destroy things. And that's sad to say. Well, and of course, one of the the cries from the people who want to crack down ends up being, well, see, they they're earning that because of their behavior. They're tearing up their own neighborhood. Well, whose neighborhood are they supposed to be able to tear up? We don't have charter buses out here, you know, running them out into the rich neighborhoods, right? Like they're going to they're going to tear down the system around them what what's within reach i think is is what happens right exactly and i can speak like my neighbor taking it a step further we feel like we don't own anything in our neighborhood anyway we don't own property we can't afford to buy houses we don't own any stores everything is owned by somebody else we live in, that's the sad part about living in some of these neighborhoods. We're in our neighborhood is predominantly black, but we don't own anything in the neighborhood. So, like when we tearing, they tearing up stuff. We not thinking we tearing up our stuff. You know, it's like how's we tearing up something? We don't even have the right to buy buildings in our community. Most of the buildings in my community are owned by outside people that never even came in the neighborhood. So. That's with the stores and everything. We don't own anything, so we don't feel like it's ours, really. Yeah, yeah. There's a long history of that, right? Where, well, all of this, all of this. And so something has, this is like what I, I have two sons, and this is what I tell them when they're bickering and they're fighting, and they're both just dug in on the same approaches that they handle every argument with each other. Well, somebody at some point has to be willing to look at this from a different angle and be willing to change something about how they're approaching it. I definitely agree. I just think um, if we felt more like we owned our neighborhood instead of lived in it, you wouldn't see so much chaos. I don't yeah. think people would just go around and burn their own houses and stores down. But we don't own none of that. I I know it doesn't make an excuse. I'm not making an excuse for it. Or I'm trying to get people to get deeper into the mind of a person that lives in these neighborhoods, me being one of them. That's why I chose to stay in the neighborhood that I was in because I felt like I can make a bigger impact by living in the neighborhood and not moving out and showing in that I'm in a fight with them. I think you only fight the uh, the this this war more effectively if you're in the belly of it. You have to not be afraid to be inside to make the change. I hear you. I hear you. And and what I'm what I'm saying is that I think instead of just blaming the people who are doing that, we need to hear what you are saying. That collectively, everybody needs to hear why these things are happening, not just say, you know, not just point the finger at them and, and blame and keep blaming. That's where we've been in history. And so um, it makes sense to me what you're saying. And I wish more people would listen to it and take that into consideration and, and understand where this pain is coming from and why it comes out the way it does. So moving on here uh, for a minute, what I want to ask you about is, is, um, you know, we learn a lot about ourselves and about life in general from the mistakes that we make. Maybe, you know, I think a lot of people say more than from the successes. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. So what I'm curious is how that might sound true to you. And if you have any particular experience, I often ask people about shaping experiences in their lives. What is something that you have a memory of in your life, maybe from childhood, maybe it's from last week, whatever the case, where you're like, man, that's a lesson I'm going to carry with me always. That's something I'm learning from. Well, I think the greatest lesson I, that I've learned 
was actually younger when I was younger when I lost my brother to um, gun violence. Uh, I learned so much from that. I learned how it affects gun violence affects people in a way you wouldn't believe. And at that moment that I lost my brother, I was a young guy. Uh, it made me want to change my life right away. Even though I still had my uh, ups and downs that I went through, I learned the importance of family when I lost my brother and how to be close to my family. Uh, losing my brother made me really want to be a better father also because my brother died and never got to see none of his children. So just the, uh, the importance of family, uh, the importance of being, how can I say, present, uh, the importance of not taking a fast route because that's what we were doing. We were just trying to take a fast way out, man. And, and, and unfortunately my brother had to lose his life. So, uh, just the importance of patience and how something, the best things do come to those who wait and not to rush life. And, um, to really, uh, keep my family close because you never know you're not promised tomorrow. So, if anything, I learned really the value of family and families being together. You are also involved with the Milwaukee Fatherhood Initiative. And so will you tell me about what that work is that you're doing there? Well, I, I'm formerly a part of the Fatherhood Initiative. I retired, actually. I was the uh, outreach coordinator. And one of the things we did at Fatherhood Initiative, what I love was it really was finally a service for men that really service men in all the areas that were ailing men, like uh, child support debt, not being able to find decent jobs, uh, men's health, things like that. It was the first organization that was focused on solely bringing the man back to prominence and letting him be, uh, how can I say, effective in his household. And I kind of really enjoyed being that job because it was at that job I learned a lot about my own self. I was able to get myself together and clean up a lot of debt of myself that I had. And um, it was the first time we got to work with men in prisons. And one of the most, I say, can I say, milestones of my life was actually being able to go back in a prison that I was once held as a prisoner and go in as a facilitator, like to be on the other side. And I think it was real inspirational for a lot of the inmates and the men, they would come to MFI because they knew I was in prison with them. They knew I, they had seen me walk those same halls. And to be coming out as a facilitator, as a person with information, a person of change, I think it inspired a lot of the men. And uh, just being an MFI coordinator, it really just changed my life because it showed me the importance of being a man and a, a role model in my community. And not only in my community, as in my family as well. And to understand that um, well, my kids are heavily influenced by some of the things I do. And not only just my kids, other young people in my neighborhood. A lot of young men look up to me. So it really gave me the a lead by example attitude when I was at MFI. You know, that's another example of what you're saying there, going into the prison where you once stayed and being that example, there's a lot that you are showing, you're leading from your own life. Do you look back at some of these things that 
you know, were lower moments in your life, the harder things, things you thought maybe that you weren't ever going to get away from. And now how you've turned that into something positive and constructive and helping the community. I'm wondering how you, how you got there. You know, that takes a lot of strength and courage and belief because I'm sure for an awful lot of people, when the chips are down, they just stay down. It's it's hard to get over that. Oh, definitely. I think for me, they have this saying. When I went to prison, I went to prison for the last time in 1999. And I could just remember how terrible I felt, how I had felt. I had let down everybody in my family, how I felt that I had just let down my mother, who I care about so much. And they have this saying in prison that the wall talks to you. And what it was is just me talking out loud and my thoughts kind of bouncing off the wall. And every time when I hear my answer that bounce off that wall, I would hear, stop, no, and don't. And no matter what I, it, it, that's what came to head. Like, you got to stop this. You don't got to do this anymore. And no, don't ever go down that road again. And I just was really fed up because I was thinking, how much time and how much damage I was doing by being away from my children and how uh, by me being in prison, what influences were they picking up on? Who were around them? What was they looking up to? What, who were the people influencing them and what were they influencing them to do? So it was kind of like uh, when I was in prison that last time, I could truly say I had a divine, just a divine, something divine happened to me to where I made a vow to myself that once I got out of prison, no matter what I had to do, whether if I had no money, no nothing, I would never go back to a life of crime or a life of hustling because I knew the importance and damage that I was causing my kid. And then when I was released, actually interacting back into my family, I had seen the damage that I had done to my kid by not being around. I had seen some of the things that they had picked up by negative influences because of just me not being present. So, it was my last time in prison and I just had, a, like I said, a divine premonition that everything was over and that I would do everything in my power to make an honest living and become an honest man because I wanted my kids to look up to me. So a lot of the motivation was my, my kids and just wanting to be a better father because I didn't have a father. And all the memories of my dad were bad memories because he wasn't present. I felt like I didn't get it. I didn't learn anything from it. I wanted my kids to learn from me. I wanted my kids to look up to me, to look at me as a role model. So that made me want to change my life. And when I got out of prison, uh, I didn't have a job. It took me nine years to get a job. But one thing that kept my sanity was just the, uh, just the uh, power of, uh, how can I say, volunteering. Everything started from volunteering, even my job from an NMFI. I just started to volunteer because I didn't want to go back to crime. And the only way I feel good about myself is if I'm helping somebody. So that's what, what it was. It was just, uh, I was fed up and I just seen the effects of what it was doing to my family. Not only the effects of my family, but what it was doing to me personally, by me not being present, by killing my self-esteem, killing my drive. So when I got released that last time, I just wanted to go up and I just felt like volunteering my time in the community will be my ticket to getting my way out. And that's what it ended up doing. That's a long time to go without a job and for you to maintain that strength and, and the will 
to not fall back on things you surely knew you could have done. So I commend that for sure. That's that's a a huge long effort. Yeah, I mean, I, I accomplished a lot in that nine years. That well, volunteering led to me actually making a, a big article in the newspaper. And then next thing you know, all these news cameras started to come out to see what we were doing in our neighborhood. I didn't think it would lead to it anywhere, but it actually led to the mayor of Milwaukee gave me a job. I was like the first three-time convicted felon to work for the mayor's administration. Wow. That was one of the greatest milestones of my life. And to be able to share that moment with my family, I know I had inspired my kids in a way that they haven't been inspired in a while because they knew me. My kids know about me, daddy being in games and daddy doing things, you know. So to see me on a stage or the scale to where the the mayor's honoring me at the State of the City address, and I win this award, and he offered me the job at the MFI. At that point, I had felt accomplished that my nine years of not working was it led to this great moment. So, uh, and then so many other things from coordinated to the five three two zero six documentary which was an award-winning documentary where we really got to change, share some light on what was going in our neighborhood finally to the world and get support from outside the sources. And we never thought it would win an award or go even be in a film festival. We were just experimenting, shooting a film on mass incarceration of our neighborhood. And it actually took us to places we never dreamed of going. I never dreamed that I could even, like I told you, I recently got on an airplane five years ago. And that was because of portals and this film. And to be able to go outside my neighborhood and to be looked at as an, uh, a leader, a person of change, it really inspired everybody in the neighborhood because a lot of people know me from those gang days. So if you see, I'm proud to say now Google me. I never thought I could even get Google. So that's one of my, <laughs> like, like, wow, Google me now, you know? So you can see some of the great things that I've been doing in news articles and videos. So it really, um, changed me just um uh being inspired to volunteer it made me want to become more and more of a philanthropist and portals just help us to do it on a global scale so I, all these accomplishments came within the last five to six years of my life and i just see myself going up and up and like being on this podcast i'm, I'm i view this as a privilege especially coming from where i'm coming from because you never i never thought in a million years a person listen to something that I have to say and be interested in anything that's going on in my neighborhood. I appreciate your story. I appreciate all the the strength and courage that's in this and all the positive lessons and how you're connecting with your community and all those kids that, you know, maybe some of them don't have a male role model, a father in the house like you didn't have, but you're giving back instead of turning against it. And so I want to ask now, what? how old are your kids and how are they doing? Well, all my kids are grown now. <laughs> my baby just moved out. Uh, she just turned 21, and she's headed off to college. Uh, one of my daughters is a nurse. She just finished college. One of my daughters is a security at a bank. My son, he manages a couple of Walmarts, and they turned out pretty good. I'm proud, you know, and I'm proud because they got off on the right foot. They didn't start off on me. I can truly say I feel like my kids are divine kids because they not into things that I was into as far then I the streets didn't allure them the way it did me. And I think a lot of that got to do with me actually getting out of prison and correcting myself 
and really focusing on them growing and educating themselves. So I'm right now I'm a proud dad, man. Like I couldn't be no prouder than I ever been because I feel like it, where I failed at, I was able to kind of correct with them. I appreciate that. And I'm sure they really appreciate it too. Everything that you're saying and what you've done for them, because what I've heard besides the, the importance of communication, this conversation is the importance of family to you, how much it matters, how much they matter to you and to try to do right by them. So I, I want to ask our final question. Uh, like I ask everybody, it's a version of what I ask every listener, how do you live humanness and creativity in your life? But we've been talking about that this whole hour. So I'm going to put the question to you in this way, Lewis. What is important to you about how you live your life? And maybe what are some things that you would hope that others would describe you as based on these actions? What's important to me right now about my life is leaving a positive legacy behind for not just my children, but for my community and being viewed as a person who really wants to change, a person who really cares about the change of not only my neighborhood, but all the neighborhoods around the world. Because after I've been through my journey, I have a different type of outview on look. I could never be judgmental. I view everything. I'm forever, how can I say, colorblind. In, in my eyes, there's no race, there's no class. You know, it's it's just human beings. It's actually something that the kids made up a saying about portals. And it says, when you step inside a portal, it's not about class or color, but it's about human beings teaching each other. And that's what I want to do. I want people to know that I'm a person who just uh, seek knowledge, but bring knowledge. And the ultimate goal is just to leave a, a, a lifelong legacy of positive works and caring for the community and people. And um, last but not least, it's, it's never too late to make a change. I want people to know. A lot of people think they're too old to change or they, they're gone too far. I, I believe when you really want to do something, it's never too late to do it. All you have to do is have the faith and be willing to do the works. I appreciate that. And everything else that you shared here, Lewis, it's wonderful getting to know you know something of your story. Thanks so much for being here. I appreciate it. Having me, Adam, like I said, this is a privilege. And I just uh, thank you for having me. And thank you for just giving me the time to just express myself and let the world know about me. Okay. That was community facilitator and curator Lewis Lee in today's Humanity Conversation of Humanness and Creativity. You can learn more about Lewis in the show notes published on our website at Humanitude.com. And to keep the good going, follow Humanitude on your podcast player or subscribe to the Humanitude newsletter via the website. We're regularly adding conversations like this one, full of authenticity, humanity, and heart. I also encourage you to post ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever else you can, and to share the Humanity podcast on your social media pages. You can follow and tag us at Humanitu on Instagram. To contribute financial support, even just a dollar, to give a buck for Humanitu, go to the website. Again, that's Humanitu.com, and you'll see the support link in the navigation menu. Together we can cultivate a more thoughtful, kind, and creative world. And so, now comes the question that I ask you at the end of each episode. How are you living humanness and creativity in your life? I'm Adam Williams, creator and host of the Humanity Podcast. 
Thanks for being here.